was uh, doing a little bit of reading in astronomy because, you know, I don't know about you. Uh, some of you watch football. I read, you know, I read astronomy. Uh, I don't. I don't. I, I know. You do. I do not. Um, I was preparing for my sermon. And, uh, and I, I read about the Mars Clabbit Orbiter that launched on uh, December 11th, 1998 on a mission to orbit Mars. And it was designed to gather data on Mars climate. Some of you know what happened here. Um, basically, they were measuring the progress of this space orbiter on the way to uh, Mars. And there was a problem because there was data that was being processed from a system on the spacecraft and then data that was being processed uh, from a system on the ground. And the two were using different measurements. And what happened is the team there ended up, as they were measuring the progress, they used English units of measurement instead of using the metric standard of Newton seconds. Now, I have no idea what Newton seconds means. Some of you do. Uh, the point is they were using two different standards of measurements, and you can imagine what happened. It took 10 months to travel, and, and small errors added up, and it threw the orbiter off course so that when it approached Mars, it was 105 miles closer to the surface of Mars than expected. The error caused the orbiter to miss the intended orbit uh, about 90 miles or 145 kilometers off and to fall into the Martian atmosphere and disintegrate due to atmospheric stresses. In other words, it just burned up. It burned up. Why? Simply because of a miscalculation. Because of two different ways of measuring. Here's why I bring all that up. Because as we start this new year, I think it's very possible for us to do the same thing. Now, many of us, when we think about missing the mark or we think about uh, making a mistake, or we think about sin, or we think about getting to the end of our year and realizing we've done something wrong, we think about just going in completely the wrong direction, right? So think about it. If you think about sin, even if you're not a religious person, right, if you think about the idea of sin, you think, okay, God's over here, and I'm just going the complete opposite direction. But I think that illustration helps us out because that's not the only way to sin. That's not the only way to miss the mark. We can also miss the mark by trying to pursue good things, but by using the wrong units of measurement. Like as we start 2024, we can pursue things that are not sinful in and of themselves, that may even be noble, but the problem is that you and I are very tempted to just assume the units of measurements of the culture around us. Whatever the culture tells us is success, that's how we measure success. How we're supposed to look. How many zeros at the end of our bank account. The particular position we're supposed to aspire towards. The particular school that we're supposed to get in. We just take those units of measurement for granted. And what if, what if... God measures things differently. The fact of the matter is he does. And as we start this new year, here's what we want to do. What we want to do is we want to recalibrate our hearts and recalibrate our idea of success. Because here's what we see in the scriptures. 
There's lots of things that the Lord desires for us. But the main goal of the Christian life is very simple, and it's why we're calling this brand new series Being with God. What if, what if God's main desire for you and the main way you're going to find fulfillment this year is not at the end of all of your New Year's resolutions, but what if that type of satisfaction is actually found in the simplicity and the beauty of just being with God? of just learning how to get to know your heavenly father and to commune with him. And so we're starting this new series today, just a short series, Being With God. And I want you to see this message as somewhat of a theological foundation for the rest of this series. We're going to be today in John chapter 15, verse 9. John chapter 15, verse 9. I want to read it for us and then we'll unpack it together. John chapter 15, verse 9, simple verse, and it says this. This is Jesus talking, and he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Here's what I think God's charge is to us in 2024. Abide in my love. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Father, we give you our attention. We sit under the wisdom and authority of your word, God, and we want to hear from you. And so, God, we pray that you would not only speak to our hearts, but would you work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, normally when I preach, if you're new to church, normally when we preach here, we have very kind of clear main points. And so today, though, I just want us to walk away with that one verse stuck in our head. So if you're like, if you're an obsessive note taker, I'm going to drive you a little bit crazy today, okay? You can still take notes, right? I'm going to say things, right, from the Bible. You can take notes on those things, all right? But really, I just want to structure this message simply around that one verse. In fact, I want us to memorize John 15, verse 9 together. Can we do that? All right, cool. We're just going to do it anyway. You didn't sound too, all right. You sound too enthusiastic about that. All right, I just, we're going to make it simple. I just want you to repeat after me. John, at here and all of our locations, if you're watching online, repeat this after me out loud. John 15, 9. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Let's do it again. You got a little bit more confidence now. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That's the sermon. Let's close in prayer. No, no, I know. You'd be so lucky, wouldn't you? All right. Let's just break that verse down piece by piece. This is the structure of the sermon. Let's, let's take this first part. As the Father has loved me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he's talking about his relationship with God the Father. And what's interesting is that Jesus is clearly not just talking about it from a merely human perspective. Listen to what Jesus says later in the same conversation with the disciples. John chapter 17, verse 5. He says, and now, Father, he's praying, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Jesus says to God the Father, I was with you in glory before the world existed, before anything was created. Now, sometimes it's tempting to think, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but sometimes it's tempting for us to think that all religions are basically the same, like just different paths to the same God. But there's no way you could believe that if you actually study different religions. Because while some religions share some overlap when it comes to some ethical ideas, their most basic claims are often mutually exclusive. And this core claim of Christianity is probably the most important one. Here's that claim. Jesus is God. This is what Jesus is claiming. Muslims reject that. Jews reject that. Unitarians reject that. Black Hebrew Israelites reject that. Everybody rejects that except Christians. It's the essence of the Christian faith. That Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just an inspiring example or even just a holy prophet. Jesus is God. Amen. And you got to understand this because the Bible reveals something profound and fundamental about ultimate reality. You've probably heard this statement before. God is what? Yeah, God is love. We hear it all the time. It's, it comes from the Bible in 1 John chapter 4. And here's what I want you to just think about real quick. If God is love, and if he's always been loving, then who did God love before he created someone else to love? If he's always been loving, then who did he love before he created someone else to love? And one of the things that this implies, the very idea that this points us to is something central to the Christian faith, that before anything was created in the physical or spiritual realm, there existed a divine community of eternal love. It's what we as Christians call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three different gods, not just three phases or manifestations or descriptions of God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one, three distinct persons who have always existed together in loving harmony. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, The Reason for God, which I would highly recommend if you're exploring Christianity or you know somebody who's exploring Christianity. He said this, he said, the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. He said, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. You see how he's describing this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get a window into that divine love in the life of Jesus. You think about the way the disciples uh, describe Jesus' relationship with God the Father. Think about it. The Father affirms the Son. Matthew 3, 17, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Son wants to please the Father. John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing 
to him. The father gives to the son in John 3.35, and the son trusts the father in 1 Peter 2.23. And you say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus doesn't explicitly mention the Holy Spirit in John 15, verse 9, because he's making a specific point here about the Father's love. But later in that same conversation, we see that Jesus endorses the Holy Spirit's ministry. John chapter 16, verse 7. And the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. Listen, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always loved each other in ways that we can't fully comprehend. Now, pause. Some of you are like, Mike, what in the world are you talking about right now? Like, all of that sounds interesting, maybe not, maybe a little bit confusing, but what is the point? What's the point of sharing all all of that about the Trinity? here's, Here's the point. Here's the point. The reason I bring up the fact that there has always existed this divine community of eternal love is because it's so significant to how we understand reality and how we understand our own lives. Let me put put it this way. There was an interview with Will Smith. You know, the actor Will Smith. Some of us are like, yes. Others of us are like, who is that? It's it's Willow's dad, okay? Um, there There was an interview with him in an Esquire article, and uh Will Smith was talking about how his movie After Earth was one of the most painful failures in his career. And he said this. He said, I had to dive into why it was so important for me to have number one movies. And I never would have looked at myself in that way. I was a guy who, when I was 15, my girlfriend cheated on me. And I decided that if if I was number one, no woman would ever cheat on me. All I have to do is make sure that no one's ever better than me and I'll have the love that my heart yearns for. And I never released that and moved into a mature way of looking at the world. He said, after Earth comes out, I get the box office numbers on Monday and I was devastated for about 24 minutes. And then my phone rang and I found out my father had cancer. That put it in perspective viciously. And I went downstairs and got on the treadmill, and I was on the treadmill for about 90 minutes. I have no idea why he got on the treadmill or why he included that detail. But he says, and that Monday started the new phase of my life, a new concept. Here's the new concept. Only love is going to fill that hole. He said, you can't win enough. You can't have enough money. You can't succeed enough. There is not enough. The only thing that will ever satiate that existential thirst is love. And he said, and I just remember that day, I made the shift from wanting to be a winner to wanting to have the most powerful, deep, and beautiful relationships I could possibly have. And the truth is, this is how all of us live. Psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson says, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. That's true physically and psychologically, that we are literally born into the world looking for someone looking for us. But it's also true spiritually. We're looking for love, and in particular, whether we realize it or not, we're looking for the love of God. 
That divine eternal love that we've been talking about, that divine eternal love that has existed for all of eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the divine satisfying love that you and I were created to and were born looking for. And the problem is that there's no way for us to get into that divine love on our own. Like our sin and our self-sufficiency has sealed us off from that divine love. And so listen, so we try to build our lives on and fill our souls with other inferior loves. We try to build our lives on and fill our souls with success until we realize that there is not enough success to actually fill that void. Success can't do what love does. We try to build our lives on and we try to fill our souls with satisfaction and pleasure until we realize that the more we experience pleasure, the more we want pleasure. And it's like this trick and this trap that keeps us in this cycle, constantly pursuing more and more and more. That's why your sexual immorality and pornography just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you need something more intense and more extreme to even get physical satisfaction because you're falling into the trap of trying to fill your soul with something that only love can fill your soul with. We try to fill our soul and build our lives on other people's approval of us. Our families, our friends, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is. We try to fill our soul with these other inferior loves until one day our eyes are opened and our hearts are awakened and we finally hear our Savior say to us right here in the verse, as the Father has loved me, guess what? So have I loved you. You don't have to look anymore. Jesus says to his disciples and through his disciples to us, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So let's pause. Let's do a memory pop quiz. Can we do that? Come on, let's, let's practice. Let's, let's, let's say this together. Let's put that verse back on the screen. We're going to read it out loud together. Just that one little part, okay? Can we read? Let's read this out loud together. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Okay, let's take it off the screen. Here, all of our locations online. Let's try to say that from memory outside to, uh, out loud together. We're going to start with John 15, 9. You ready? John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Perfect. Now, I want you to think about how crazy this is. Everything we were just talking about, the eternal love expressed and enjoyed in the Trinity, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I have invited you into that love. I've invited you into that love. He says, that's why I came in person. That's why I've spent so much time with you, not just to teach you how to conform to religious rules or to become a better person, but to give you personal, direct access to the eternal love of God. And the disciples experienced that love in so many ways. Think about this. Jesus spent three years with his disciples. 
eating with them, traveling, teaching them, weeping with them. He lived up close and personal with them. And here's what that means. It means that he knew very intimately how sinful and flawed they were. He knew exactly who they were. In fact, the disciples would have been a natural fit for D.C. culture. Like, think about it. They were power hungry. You remember James and John came to Jesus and lobbied for the most prominent seats in the kingdom? They harbored prejudice toward people who lived on the wrong side of town. You remember when Philip came and told Nathaniel that the, uh, the Messiah was from Nazareth and Nathaniel didn't believe him? And he said, you remember what he said? Can anything good come from Nazareth? They were skeptical and struggled with doubt. Remember, Thomas refused to believe that Jesus rose from the dead without empirical evidence. And then once Jesus' approval ratings went down after his arrest, the disciples distanced themselves from Jesus. You remember when Peter was put on the spot in front of the crowd and he acted like he didn't even know Jesus. And yet, listen to what John writes. In John chapter 13, verse 1, I love this. John writes this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, listen, having loved his own who were in the world, and I promise I could preach a whole another 40 minutes on this one phrase. I'm not. Listen to what John says. He loved them for how long? To the end. He loved them to the end. He chose them to be his disciples. These were not cream of the crop, Ivy League picks. These were not, these were some random regular dudes. And they proved that over and over and over again, that they were not worthy to follow this rabbi. And yet... Jesus persevered in his love for them. He loved them to the end. And the reason I share that is because that should be encouraging to us when we think about God's love for us. That should be encouraging to you when you think about God's love for you. Because we read about the disciples and to be honest, there's some good comedy in the Gospels. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it's Bible comedy, but when you read the disciples, they really do some dumb stuff. <laughs> and so we laugh and we look and we're like, how could they? How could they be with Jesus and act that way and make those decisions? The reality of the matter is we're seeing a mirror of our own hearts and our own lives. I was reading Charles Spurgeon's reflections on this verse, John 15, 9, which if you ever become a preacher, I would advise you against reading a Charles Spurgeon sermon on the text that you're about to preach because it makes you feel like you never want to preach again. Spurgeon was a pastor in London in the late 1800s, one of my ministry heroes. And in the middle of one of his sermons, he asked this question that stopped me in my tracks this week. Listen to this question. He asked, what was there in you that could have won his love? Not very much. 
what was there in you that could, there's nothing. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes there's not even enough in me to win my love for myself. Think about how often you've disappointed yourself. How often you've let yourself down, much less how often you've disappointed and mistreated and hurt other people. Much less how far we've fallen below and beneath the standard of God. There's nothing in us that could have won his love for us. And so Spurgeon continued, he said, if he could see any beauty in me, it must have been first in his own eyes. For he saw our deformities of sin and, def- and folly, and yet he loved us notwithstanding all. He saw our iniquities, and then he cast them into the depths of the sea. He says, Jesus, lover of my soul, thou lovest me. I told you it was 1800s. Thou lovest me, and that love is free indeed. How couldst thou be enamored of such a one as I am? And here's his conclusion. It could only be because thou lovest those who most need thy love and can least repay it. Amen. Listen, God's love is not dependent on our consistency. His love is dependent on his commitment to us. He is dependable when we are not. He's faithful when we are unfaithful. His love magnifies not our worthiness, but it magnifies his grace. We cannot earn his love. You see this all over the Bible. I love how this in the, Old, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, when God chooses his old covenant people, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But why did the Lord set his love on you? Because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You know what Moses just said here? He said, God loved you because he loves you. That's the logic of the gospel. God loves you not because he sees something that could compel him to love you. He loves you because he's decided to love you. Out of the overflow of his own intrinsic goodness and mercy and grace. And it's the same thing in the New Testament. First John Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. 
to pay the penalty we owe for our sins, to become a sacrifice, making atonement for our sins. This is the gospel, not that you and I have loved God the way we should, and therefore God responds by loving us back. No, the gospel is that we have not and cannot love God the way that we should because of our sin and because of our brokenness. We cannot by ourselves enter into that divine love. We are sealed off from that love. So how do we get in? We can't. God has to bring it to us. Amen. And he has in Jesus He came in person, love incarnate, to live the perfectly righteous life that you and I have not lived. And he died in our place on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the grave for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God comes to us in person and he looks us in the face. He says, I love you with a love that you could never earn or deserve. I love you with a love that once received and once experienced is inexhaustible and and irrevocable. I love you with this divine, eternal love that I have enjoyed in the triune Godhead for all of eternity. Will you receive that love? For some of us, we have, but sometimes we doubt God's love for us, for example, because of suffering. Well, let me ask you this. Do you doubt the Father's love for Jesus because he allowed Jesus to suffer? Jesus suffered all throughout his life, like normal human suffering. Grief, pain, like all of that. And then he experienced the ultimate suffering in the garden, realizing what he's about to do as he goes to the cross, not just the torture and and physical pain of the crucifixion, but the spiritual disorientation of being alienated from God the Father as he bore our sin. Jesus experienced suffering. Did that mean God didn't love him? Absolutely not. And so how could your suffering mean God doesn't love you? No, if Jesus is so clear, sometimes God actually uses suffering to correct us or to make us more mature or compassionate, to make us more like Jesus. His, our suffering cannot mean that God doesn't love us. And listen, here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, in case you're ever tempted to doubt my love for you, let me make this unquestionably clear. If you are my disciple, you should be as confident in my love for you as you are confident in the Father's love for me. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you, and I've invited you into that divine, eternal love. So let's read this verse one more time together and we'll close this out. You guys ready? Yeah? I know, it's the 9 a.m. service. All right, cool. (laughs) Let's read this out loud together. Let's go. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Abide in my love. Let's take it off the screen. Let's recite out loud together. Starting with John 15, verse 9. Let's say it out loud here at all locations. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Now, this is essentially what we want to reflect on over the next several weeks in this series, Being With God. So I don't want to take too much time on it now. But we wanted to start this series with this verse because we're praying that it will reframe the way we think about our relationship with God this year. Like when Jesus says, abide in my love, he's saying, I want you to live in the continual awareness, in the continual experience of my love for you. He's saying, make your home in my love. And here's the problem. For so many of us, the love of God is more like a hotel than a home. Like maybe we experience God's love temporarily on special occasions. Like maybe on a, on a Sunday, maybe a Sunday with a better sermon, but nonetheless, like on a Sunday or something like that during worship or maybe, uh, maybe a, a, a few years ago at, at some Christian event, we visit the love of God on these special occasions, but then we go back home to our normal lives and we settle for less than what Jesus purchased for us. But listen to the broader context of what Jesus says. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then here's what he says. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Pause there for a second because this is so important. Listen, obedience is not the way we earn God's love. It's the way we learn to enjoy God's love and how we express our love for God. Let me say that again. Obedience is not the way we earn God's love, but obedience is the way we learn to enjoy God's love for us and how we express our love for God. And here's how most people think about religion. Here's how most people think about religion. And if you're considering Christianity, part of your New Year's resolution, you want to get right with God or you want to be more spiritual, here's the temptation that you're probably going to fall into. Most people think about religion this way. Obedience to God is over here and joy is over here. And you have to choose one or the other. So obeying God... And following Jesus essentially means having to constantly say no to the things that bring you real joy. That's how most people think about religion. That's how I saw Christianity as a teenager, as a college student. But that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity, in biblical Christianity, listen, obeying God means not that you have to give up the things that give you real joy. Obeying God means that you have to give up the things that are keeping you from supernatural joy. Obeying God does mean giving some things up. 
It does mean making some sacrifices, if you could call it that. But it's not that you're leaving joy behind. It's that you're leaving behind these inferior loves that make false promises of joy, and you are pursuing superior, eternal, divine love that actually promises and delivers supernatural joy. If you're new to our church or or maybe new to Christianity in general, you got to understand this. This is why Jesus says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Listen, God's commands are always invitations to experience something better. God's commands are always invitations to experiencing something better, to experience a new way of life with him, a way of life that is bedazzled by God's love for us. And this is why I started the way I started that we can start this year off maybe not going the complete wrong direction, but pursuing good things that we think are going to fill our souls and using the wrong units of measurement. Here's the reality. Being with God is the goal. Being with God is the goal. Your family is great. Friendships are great. Job is great. Music is great. Art is great. Nature is great. All those things are great. But all those things, rightly understood, are the good and perfect gifts from a father who loves us and loves giving good gifts to his children. And so those things become a means to enjoying the love and the presence of God. Being with God is the goal. It's the goal. Communion with God should be the deepest and most passionate pursuit of our lives. And that's why we're doing this series, Being With God. God willing, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about being with God in quiet. Like you and God in private. Spending time together. You experiencing his love through his word and in prayer and worship before him, being with God in choir. We're going to talk about being with God in chaos. Because a lot of us, like, we hear messages like that and we're like, oh, that's nice. But my kids are tyrants. They follow me to the bathroom, they, everything. And my job is demanding. I got to work 70 hours a week. And school is just overwhelming. There's just constant projects and assignments and So how do you learn to be with God in the chaos? We're going to talk about being with God in the dark. How do you learn to be with God in mystery and doubt and suffering? And then we're going to talk about, Lord willing, being with God in community. What does this look like in community with other people who are pursuing the same thing? This is all a part of What we do every year, which is 21 days of prayer, 21 days of prayer. So this series is kind of bracketing our 21 days of prayer. It's just a way that we, we, we start the year off by dedicating the year to God, 
for, for three weeks, and this is going to start not, not tomorrow, but the following Monday. So we'll remind you this week, we'll remind you next Sunday. But it's how we start the new year off dedicating ourselves to God and saying to God, God, we want to make ourselves available to whatever you want to do in us, whatever you want to do through us. God, I just want, I want to just, I want to experience more of your love. I want to live in the experience of that love. I want to abide in that love. And I want that love to flow me, flow through me to other people. And so I want to encourage you, you can do it now. This is the one time where you can actually take out your phone and hold it up in church, wherever your location you're watching from online. You can go to McLean Bible dot org slash 21 days or you can use the qr code that's there on the screen it's going to take you to our 21 days of prayer website there's some resources there for you and i want you to just follow there's a couple simple steps that are on that website one sign up to let us know you're doing it with us use the 21 days of prayer checklist it's just a document one page document to help guide you in planning how are you going to use this 21 days how are you going to pray how are you going to read the Word? Our, our new Bible reading plan started for 2024. Are you going to fast? What are you going to, how are you going to fast? So you can read through the resources on that page, and then you'll see on there you can mark your calendars for our different prayer gatherings over this 21 days. We have one church-wide prayer gathering on Friday night, January 19th. All locations gathered here in the Tyson's Auditorium at 7 p.m., and then there are different prayer gatherings at every single location. And the schedule for all of that is at mcleanbible.org slash 21 days. We want to start this year off practicing what Jesus invites us to do, which is abiding in the love of God for us. And maybe some of you here or watching, maybe, maybe you need to make the decision today to receive that love for the first time. So just stop your striving Stop your running. Just surrender to God's love and trust what Jesus has done for you in his life and his death and his resurrection. And just tell him in prayer, God, I want that love. I want to be forgiven. I want this relationship with you. And I'm putting my trust in you. And if that's you here at our locations online, we would love to talk to you. Find one of our leaders, one of our staff, one of our pastors. We'd love to pray for you or talk to you or contact us this week, but I want to give you a moment between you and the Lord. But before we do that, I want us to say this verse one more time together. We're not even going to put it on the screen. You think you can handle that? Y'all, yeah. Tyson's wasn't very confident. Prince William, we might need your help. All right. Y'all ready? Yeah. Let's say this out loud together. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Oftentimes in prayer, I'll just start just in quiet, and I'll just recite that one verse in my head to remind me, oh, God, you love me. I feel guilty. I feel weak. I feel anxious. I feel whatever. But, God, you love me right now. So I want to give you a moment here online at our different locations to just reflect in prayer before God. Here's two questions you can use to guide you. How has God been reminding you of his love in this season of your life? Or maybe this question, do you want to experience more of his love? That's a wrestling question. That's a wrestling with God question. God, I want to experience more of your love. Won't you take a moment between you and the Lord and reflect on that, pray based on that, and I or one of the pastors at your location is going to come up and close us out. Take a moment between you and God.